Turning your Bibles, please, to the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. And uh, I want to read the portion that is most problematic, the more, most difficult part that uh, brings a lot of discussion and debate in the church over what in the world Paul is saying and who is he saying it about. And that's what begins in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it out, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Paul actually goes on to continue this discussion in chapter 8. So don't make these big um, barriers between these chapters because there's a chapter division. But the theme of the passage, as we've seen, is Paul discussing our our relationship uh, to the law. Now, my own understanding is that he's doing this because there are those, particularly among the Jews or even Christians who've been converted, who want to give something of a privileged place to the law. That in the Christian understanding of grace and salvation, the law really does not occupy. Now, I believe the law has something to say to us by way of instruction. The law has something to say to us that it embodies wisdom, the way to live well and to live wisely. Uh, you think of the way in which the proverb speaks of obeying the law of your father and the law of your mother. And there it's talking about how to live wisely, how to live well, how to live with discretion, how to live with um, understanding in, in this world. And the book of Proverbs highlights that. Um, but it doesn't do it in, in, in a way that uh, says, well, this is the way we, be, we get redeemed, or this is the way that we are translated from death to life, or this is the way we come out of condemnation into um, justification. But it is um, yet important instruction that in, as redeemed people, we, we take to heart. And, of course, Israel received the law in that very way as um, a redeemed people, redeemed from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. And then God says, have no other gods before me. On the basis of what I've done, here's how, what you are to do, how you are to live. Um, but the law is not a saving thing. And, and Paul makes it very clear that um, we, we, we once were alive to the law, we, but uh, through the death of Christ, we've been released from our marriage to the law. And now we're married to a new husband, our Lord Jesus, who is the one who gives us help. 
Um, but before the law, um, we used to see condemnation. The law exposes the reality of our sin. We wouldn't, he Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin, but was the law had said, you should not covet. And I attempted to explain that. I think he's talking about his conversion and his own, you know, the whole question of how in the world did he get into the place where he was persecuting the people of Yahweh, the people of the God of Israel? Well, it's because of his own ambition to be a leading light in the Jewish religion, to be the up-and-coming rabbi. And he was filled with such a covetousness after his own advancement that um, he had no toleration at all, even to hear or listen or to take to heart or to even consider the, the things that the gospel uh, presented. And Jesus said about the Pharisees, they seek the glory that belongs to man rather than the glory that belongs to God. And so... Uh, Paul says the commandment came and it seized an opportunity. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment uh, deceived me and killed me. I thought I was not a covetous man, but in actuality I was. We're the, usually the last to see it. And uh, it's the law that comes to expose it. It's the law that can teach, it, teach us. Um, when, when God blesses the law for those purposes, and it never blesses the law to say how you can keep the law because the law has no properties to, to achieve that. The law can't get us to be obedient. The law can only show us where we have failed. Um, it can show us what we should be doing, but it also shows us what we haven't done. Um, so the problem is not the law, the problem is me. The law is holy, he says in verse 12. The commandment is holy, it's righteous and good. Um, and it's through the knowledge of the law we come to see at least as God blesses the law to our understanding that sin is beyond measure sinful. Um, and then he goes into this discussion about himself in relationship to the law of God, that the law is spiritual. It is, you know, if we could do it, we'd be the most holy people in the world. We'd be conformable to God. God's law expresses expressive of his holy character, the things that God says are sacred. The problem is, we are of the flesh. We are sold under sin. And Paul's using strong expressions, but he's using strong expressions expressing the reality of the disparity that exists between the law and himself. The law is a spiritual thing, but in myself, I can't do it. Now, he's not talking about anything to do with the grace of the gospel that can bring you to be a gospel lawkeeper. He's speaking about himself before the law. The law is... Holy, just and good. The law is spiritual, but I'm not in myself. And I think we have to understand that he's saying what he is in himself. He says, I know that in me, that is my flesh, there dwells no good thing. He's talking about what he is in himself. Um, Not what he is in grace, not what he is through the power of the gospel, but what he is in himself. As he stands before the law, he is captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. Um, So there's no good that's in him. And in fact, when the law comes and it does its work of instruction, and it does its work of prompting us to say, well, here's what God wants us to do. Let's get busy doing it. He says, when I begin to do what the law says, in the stuff of my own power and my stuff of what's in me, um, I do not do what I want. The law comes with this instruction. I said, that'd be a great thing. If I could love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. It turns out that I just forget God for much of the day. 
I live without respect to him and regard to him. I'm not walking with a conscious awareness of his presence and walking before him. How does that happen? You start the day all energized to walk before God, to acknowledge him in all of your ways. And then you find that in me, there's just that, you know, not an ability to do the things you desire to do. I mean, we all know that when we make our New Year's resolutions, we set out the plan for ourselves, and in a couple of days, well, it's all gone by the boards, and we have failed, and we feel frustrated. And Paul's speaking about that. Um, I do not do what I want, he says at the end of verse 15, but I do the very thing I hate. Do I want to forget God? No. Is it a hateful thing to forget God? Yes. But do I forget God? Often. That's the reality of how we live in this world. That's the reality of indwelling sin. That's the reality of not reigning sin, but remaining sin. Again, in the grace of the gospel, sin no longer reigns over us. We're not under sin's dominion. We're not under sin's power. We can say no to sin, but yet we often don't. We often don't. So there's something within us that keeps us bound to just the reality that there's a gap between what we know we should be doing and what we actually do. If I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it's good. I'm saying the law is good. The law is perfectly good and holy and just and oh, would to God that I could be obedient to the law in all of its requirements. But yet I don't. And so Paul makes the conclusion in verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it. He's not bucking responsibility here. But he's saying there's something in himself that's not the better nature, better, what they say, the better angels of one's nature. It's, it's, it's not the, the things that I would desire to do. The real me wants to serve the law of God. But there's sin in me that seems to be the determining factor many times in what I actually do, how I actually perform. So it's not my intention to sin. It's not my intention to be anything other than perfectly compliant with the law of God. That's how I begin most days. Your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life as well as in the life of other people. Lord, I hope that I would do your will this, today. And yet the reality is we don't. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now he's not saying there's nothing good that dwells in me by virtue of the spirit that indwells me. He's not saying there's nothing that's good in me by virtue of the blessings of the gospel. He's saying there's nothing good that dwells in me in terms of what I have in myself by nature. What I am by nature. That's the problem. It's not what the grace of God brings into the equation of what we are as Christians. But it's the reality of what we are by nature that's still resident in our hearts. We're no longer in Adam in terms of a a union of condemnation and a union of death. We're in Jesus. But yet the the remnants of the old man are still there. The remains of the old Adam are still there. It's like we're walking around with a corpse. (laughs) That's drawing us away from what we ought to be doing. The good that I want... I do not do. The evil that I do not want is, is what I do. And so there is this reality within my, my soul of this tension with the reality of remaining sin versus what I am in Jesus, what I am through the power of a new creation, and what I am in myself before the law of God. I just can't be doing it. I just can't be obeying it. I just can't be doing all that the law requires. It's not that I, I, I ignore the law. 
It's not that I don't want to keep the law. I do want to keep the law. I recognize it as holy, just, and good. I recognize that it's spiritual. I recognize it as something that gives wise instruction, how I should be living my life. And I try, but I don't get there. Because, and not because of the Spirit. I mean, he's going to talk about that in chapter 7. But because of what he is in himself. What he is in his flesh. There's no longer, there's, there's nothing that's good in him in accordance with his flesh. And so I find, he says in verse 21, here's the conclusion of the matter. Uh, it to be a law. It to be just a ruling principle. And here law is not mosaic law, it's not the ceremonial law, it's not the civil law it's a principle that governs life in God's world, that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand and so we have to constantly be under our bodies to buffet it as he says in the Corinthian letter, to bring it under subjection because again it doesn't naturally come under subjection now, it's not that we can't tame a, an unruly tongue again by the grace of the gospel we can keep a guard over our lips we can rule over an unruly tongue but yet the propensity is to let the tongue just fly free and say whatever it wants and even when you do your best to try to keep the tongue under control you end up saying things, you say, what in the world did I say that for? That was completely wrong. And then once you've said it, then how do you unsay it? Well, it's said. You can't unsay it. What do you do? Do you humble yourself? Well, you should. Do you always? know? Sometimes you justify yourself. You've already said it, so you don't want to lose face. You don't want to feel bad, and sometimes we're that naughty that we actually defend the words that we, in our hearts we know we ought not to have said. And you go to bed at night and you say, what in the world am I? What kind of fool am I to have spoken that way? Never should have gotten that conversation at all. And then you start to castigate yourself. Well, that's, that's how life is in this world. And it's, and it's not because we don't want to do the good. And it's not because we're not new creations in Jesus. We are. But we're not complete new creations. We're not full new creations. We're not glorified new creations. There is the, the tension of... Um, they call it eschatologically the overlapping of the ages that there is the new age that's begun in Jesus but the old age is still here it's still here we don't live in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells although the powers of the new age have come through the gospel and the power of a new creation has come through the gospel and we are new creations but we're not entirely so that's not everything that's to be said about us there is the reality of sin that still doesn't reign, but remains in us. And that's a good way to say it. It doesn't reign, but it remains. It doesn't rule, but it still plagues. And so I find a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And again, I don't think you know the argument here, is he a Christian or is he not a Christian? I mean, I think, of course, he's talking present tense. I think he's talking as a Christian. But I think he's talking about himself in relationship, not so much to conversion, non-conversion. He's talking about himself in relationship to the law. That in himself, there is this reality of this plague of sin that still continues in the new creation. And before the law, he doesn't do all that the law requires. Although he does the law. 
It's not a question of him being willfully disobedient and willfully disregarding God's law of saying, who cares what the law of God says? I got saved 20 years ago. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven when I die. I don't have to wrestle with matters of law. Yes, you do. This law is wisdom. Law is instruction. Law is something that presents what is good and righteous and holy and good and spiritual. And if you want to be good, righteous, and spiritual, which as Christians we do. We do. We have a yearning for that very thing. Then we recognize that this is the reality of how we live life in this world. And that's why we yearn for the consummation of the ages. That's why we yearn for the full redemption, the whole creation. He's going to say in chapter 8, um, it, it wrestles with this very thing. It, it yearns for the, uh, it, it groans uh, for the redemption of the children of God. If the creation itself wants to come under that, from under the curse, how much more you and me who want to serve God with unsinning heart, want to serve God. I mean, I, again, I don't think we have a sinning heart in this. We have a good and, and noble heart, a righteous heart, an honest heart, a regenerate heart. But yet that's not all that we have. We have this corpse that we're dragging along with us in the Christian life, which is the remnants of sin, the remnants of the old man, the remaining sin that still remains in us. So evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Whenever I meditate on God's law, I delight in it. The first Psalm, right? Psalm 1. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord after the inner man. And every time I read the Bible, any time I hear the Bible read in public worship, any time I'm exposed to the truth of God's word, it brings joy to my heart. I delight in it. I want to be in God's house. I want to hear God's word. I want to feed upon God's truth. I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. My mind says yes to it. My emotions say yes to it. My will says yes to it. Doing all this saying yes, and then i got to go out and live. (laughs) And in the process of living, we're very forgetful people. We don't apply it as we should. There's all kinds of blind spots in our life that we do not apply what what we've heard and what we know. Change is, is hard, but change is possible and change is real, although it's long and it's difficult and it's sometimes agonizingly slow. And yet it's a real reality that we are conforming to Jesus um, and we're putting sin to death and we're living unto righteousness and all those things are true. When I think of it in my inner being, there's nothing but positives. There's not, I, I mean, I, if I have to look at my life, I say there's lots I can criticize. I look at God's law, there's nothing to criticize. Everything in God's law is good and positive. Everything in me, though, a different story. It's just a contrast. God's law and me. God's law and who and what I am. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Again, the law of the Lord is first heard and it's discerned and it's understood with our minds, with our inner, inner, inner being, receiving it, thinking about it, desiring it, loving it, approving of it. <clears throat> and yet there's another law in my members waging against the law of my mind. <clears throat> we don't know more than we do. It's the end of the story. What's in the law of our mind in terms of instruction far exceeds anything you and I have ever done. If for one day we could live up to everything we know, wouldn't that be a great day? 
Wouldn't it be a great day? You want then Groundhog Day to kick in. <laughs> you get to live that day again and again and again. Well, in glory, it's, every day will be that way. But here in this life, no, it's not. It's just not that. I mean, to be honest and, and real, we all know more than what we do. And so Paul makes a distinction about the law of his mind, what he knows, what he approves of, what he understands. Everything about God's law he loves with his understanding, with his mind, with his awareness, with his consciousness. And yet there is this other law waging against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So that the tongue that's accustomed to boasting still boasts. And the the eye that looks upon things with a covetous eye still covets. And we have to shut down the computer because it's too easy to go to Amazon and hit click buy the product and put it on your credit card or put it on your Amazon card at tremendous interest rates. We, we, we find it hard to cast off the old and to do what we know to be right. We make rash decisions. We make foolish decisions. We, we act in a way that is impulsive many times, not clearly well thought out. If we've taken the time to consider, if we've taken time to apply the law of God to the situation, we might have had a different result, but we don't. We don't. We do it in church. No, we don't. We have, we have our morning devotions. You say, I'm going to keep it to my diet today. I'm not going to overeat. I'm not going to engage in any kind of overeating, any kind of gluttonous activity. And yet, you know, they bring out the cake and they bring out the, the spread and you find yourself overindulging and at the end of the day you say what in the world we're habituated to do those things it, 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 and, and we have to unlearn so much of it and it's not easy to unlearn all of the moral duties of the law of God so there's always those areas where we, have, where we fail there's always those areas at the end of the day that we have to confess our sins Paul's conclusion is, wretched man that I am. He he cries out from the sense of his own wretchedness. Not just in the past when he was a persecutor of the church, but in the present when he doesn't do all that he desires to do and wants to do. I I think it's probably the reason that uh, Jesus always sent them out two by two and Paul always had his Barnabas and they always had these associations is that, you know, when you're in association with other people, you prod each other on. Right? That's one of the problems, I think, being a Reformed Baptist minister, talking to my wife about this, is that people don't associate in the ministry. It's just odd that you ever get calls from people. I mean, every now and again you do, but it's an odd thing. Usually people want something. It's not a question so much that you have ongoing fellowship. How are you doing spiritually? How's your prayer life? How's your study life? What are you reading? We just don't do that stuff. And I don't know why, but we don't. But uh, in the Bible, it seems as though that kind of stuff was being done. And that sort of stuff is needed. You need the encouragement and input and the prodding on of others because left to yourself, you just, you, know, you tend to, um, you tend to go the path of least resistance. You tend to go the path of ease and to be 
um, doing everything you said you would do, you end up not doing. And so the law, warring against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, it's good news. There's one who comes to deliver. There's one who comes to deliver. This is not a it's not an expression of despair. This is an expression of the realization of the fact that we need a deliverer who's not just past tense deliverer. Not just deliver me from the guilt of sin, but deliver me from the present power and influence of sin today in my life. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God we have a deliverer. Thanks be to God, we have a Savior. Thanks be to God, we have one who is our intercessor. One who supplies us with the needs that we have daily to be learning and to be growing and to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be renewed, to be strengthened. And so the conclusion is that through Jesus Christ, our Lord to whom we give God thanks. I myself, he says, serve the law of God with my mind. My conscious awareness of the goodness of the law, my conscious awareness that this is the way of blessing, this is the way of honoring God and and blessing others and bringing no harm to others. That's my active endeavor, serving the law of God with my mind. That's to carry around the body of this this death. The body of death, the body of sin. Though it's in large measure crucified together with him in chapter 6, in a sense it's been rendered inoperative, yet it persists. It doesn't go away. And so with my flesh I serve the law of sin. With my flesh. I don't do everything I, I desire to do or set out to do or have holy ambitions to do. And that's where the problems of life come in. But it's not that we're without hope and it's not that we're without resources and it's not that we're out without a deliverer and it's not that we're without consolations and comfort as we live in hope of the future when these realities will no longer be. And so... That's where chapter 8 comes in. And it's a continuation. It's not a, it's not a different thing. Paul's not moving to a new subject. He's moving to the, the fact that in this condition that I'm in, serving the law of God with my mind, desiring to be obedient and pleasing to God, to this law that's good and holy and just and spiritual and right and wise and in every way the good thing, and yet I don't honor God as I should and I don't serve God any day perfectly. Yet the consolation is there is now, now, even in this state, even in this condition, in the, in the present, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that really brings us back to chapter 5. Where was condemnation found in chapter 5? Anybody tell, can tell me what was the in that we were in when condemnation was the thing that pertained to us? 
There was an in someone, but it wasn't Christ. It's in what? Turn to chapter 5. Verse 16, the free gift that comes through Jesus that abounds to the many is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, that is Adam's trespass, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the question is, do we stand before God condemned or do we stand before God justified? Are we forgiven of our sins or are sins hanging over us and the sentence of condemnation is over us well in Adam that's our situation through the one man's trespass we were under that condemnation so there is condemnation to those that are in Adam but now there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus so it's the reality of our union with Christ. It's the reality that we've been incorporated into Christ. It's the reality that we participate in Christ's death, burial, resurrection that brings us out of condemnation into justification. So that even though we wrestle with our sins, even though we pillow our heads at night and we have to say, Lord, there's many transgressions I've committed, and many things we've offended. And you, you know you don't micromanage your life. You don't go over every single detail and thought and motive. Please don't. That'll drive you nuts because that's a, that's that's a, a spiral into depression. Looking at every single aspect of you. No, chalk it up that in you there dwells not one good thing. Get out of you. You're not in you any longer. You're not an atom any longer. You're in Christ. Think of yourself in Christ. Consider yourself in Christ. In Him, there is no condemnation. Now, it would be nice to say in Him there is no sin any longer. No, but there's no condemnation for sin any longer. And then in the 8th chapter, the interesting thing is that what's denied about condemnation, but through Christ there's no condemnation, goes on in the end of chapter 8, and you think of chapter 8 being bracketed by these things that no longer pertain to us as God's people, there's also no separation from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 35. In Christ is no condemnation, and in Christ is no separation from his love. That the Christ who justifies us is the Christ who loves us, and he goes on loving us as he has demonstrated his love in that we were, when we were sinners he died for us. So that again, Paul could say in verse 34, he says, who is to condemn? He's began the chapter saying there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And now he gives forth this challenge. Who is there to condemn? Who's going to condemn the child of God? Who's going to condemn someone that's in Christ Jesus? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? Verse 33, who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
That's already God's declaration of His love. Christ died for us. More than that. What's more than dying for us? Well, He was raised for us. We'll see this morning in John 20. He was raised. Who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We got a living Redeemer who died for us. He rose for us. He ascended for us. He reigns for us. He intercedes for us. And who shall separate us from his love? There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Who, In Christ we've been purchased. We've been joined to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. He's loved us. He continues to love us. He continues to serve us and minister to us as our heavenly advocate, as our intercessor at the right hand of, of God. And there's nothing able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So even though the, the bad news is we, we live in the body of this flesh still, it's not perfected, it's not, we're not glorified, we're not, in, we're not in the new heavens and new earth. There's still this dead carcass, crucified flesh, crucified with him, that we still carry around with us. And crucifixion is a long death. It's a long death. It would take many, many hours, sometimes days, for someone crucified to actually die. And though death is certain, I mean, you don't have people that suffered crucifixion that recovered from crucifixion. Once the nails went through the hands and the feet, and you know, it was just a matter for infection to take its natural course, and that person was going to die. If you, the body of sins is, is going to die. It's been crucified with him. It's been rendered inoperative. But yet it, it, it's still a long process of dying. And it's not fully... We're not fully healed. We're healed, but we're not fully healed. The full healing comes at his return when we are glorified together with him. We're not in glory. So, that's the bad news, but it's the real news. It's the reality of our state and condition. But the good news is that there's no condemnation and no separation. And you see the state of being no condemnation, not being in any condemnation. It's not just that the legal problems we have before the law have been discharged by the death of Jesus. That's that's part of the equation, but it's not the sole part. It's not the sole answer to the problem that God introduces us to a newness of life. We were told in chapter six. We died with him, we were buried with him, we were raised with him in, in newness of life. And this newness of life pertains to life in the spirit. Life is those who are spirit and dwelt. That part and parcel of living out the Christian life is not just that we have these legal benefits given to us objectively because Jesus died in our place and discharged the sins that condemn, would condemn us. But actually, the, 
the life that would be worthy of condemnation is now also being remedied. Because the law of this, this is in chapter 8 and verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life. And the in Christ Jesus just might belong there. That the law of the spirit of life is what we're given in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus who sends the spirit. It's Jesus from whom the spirit proceeds. It's the spirit of Christ that we are given. Jesus said, I will pray the Father. He will give you another comforter. He it is that will testify of me. He is the Spirit of Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Again, the law of sin and of death is is a reality that you carry around with you. And yet, it doesn't have to be the dominant factor of living life daily. The dominant factor in the Christian life is the fact that we are dwelt by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the liberating spirit. So though sin will come, no sin has to come. No individual sin you must commit, you must do. Those words that you say you didn't have to say and you can tomorrow not say them. You can bridle the tongue as the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from the law of sin and of death. So it's not just that we're liberated from sin's judicial condemnation, but we're set free from sin's power to reign and to rule in all the situations of life. And again, there's nothing that's in our life that's going to be sin-free. But everything in our life can be put to death more and more by the power of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He says in chapter 3, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If the flesh is the factor that dictates all your decisions, all of your outlook, all the ways of your life, then you have no life in you. You just have flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. So it's by the Spirit we engage with sin and we say, no, you will not have dominion over me. I'm dead to, the, I'm dead to sin through the power of the gospel. And so there is this liberation where you're set free from the law of sin and death that you don't have to follow. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has achieved for us what could not be done if, all, if we just had the law. The law could not achieve deliverance. It cannot achieve liberation. It cannot achieve anything of spiritual good, not because it's not good, not because it's not holy, not because it's not right and wise, but it's weakened by the flesh. It's our, 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 again, the problem in us. Our inability to comply with the law. That's the problem. It's the, the, the law is not the problem. I mean, if we could keep the law, I guess the law, law could save us. But we can't keep the law. And so the law can't save us. 
So God has done what the law could not do. Not because the law is evil, but it's weakened by the flesh. Our own sinful propensities, our own sinful habits and patterns and desires. And yet, God has done what the law could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son. By sending his own son. You see it in the words of verse 3? What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. It's interesting. Paul does not say he came in sinful flesh, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of our Adamic humanity. But Jesus was never in Adam. We were in Adam. Jesus was never in Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Right? Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is never in Adam. But yet he came in a true humanity like us in every respect but sin. And in the likeness of sinful flesh meant he hungered, he thirsted. It meant he could die. Everything true of humanity except for sin um, and the commission of sin, uh, Jesus shares with us. He was made like us in every respect except for sin. And as the sinless one who is not an Adam, but who comes to form in himself a new humanity, in him, he condemns sin in the flesh. He took away the condemnation. But it's not just that we would have legal respite, that the law can't get us any longer. But it goes further than that. It's not just that we're justified from the law. But in verse 4, it's an order that. It's an order that. Here's the end game. Here's the end game of what God has done in Christ. It's all to the end that. We've been forgiven that. We've been saved that. We've been brought out of darkness into marvelous light in order that. The end game is the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Isn't that astounding? Again, this law that can't save us, yet it's the model of our conformity in that it's fulfilled in us in terms of the things that it requires. When you think about it, Jesus was the perfect law keeper, was he not? He was, came, he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those that were under the law. And Jesus could say, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you can point a finger at me? No, he's the sinless one, the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, son of God. And as a sinless one, he condemns sin in the flesh, but yet he becomes also the model for our holiness, so that we, as he's going to go on to say, we're conformed to the image of Christ. Conform to the image of God's Son. So it's that the law, in terms of its Christ-likeness, is the law in terms of its wisdom. It's the law in terms of its reflection of the holy character of God. It's the law in terms of the things that the law requires. What does the law require? It requires love to God and love to neighbor. It's that that would be fulfilled in us. It's not that we get a pass on the law. But again, I think the law is, is reconfigured so that it's just not command, 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 command. It's instruction and wisdom. 
It's instruction in the way to please God. It's instruction in the way to be conformed to Jesus. And that's God's design, is that we might be a people transformed. We would be a people renewed. We would be a people that do not walk after the flesh. We won't walk in accordance with all the sinful propensities of our fallen natures. We'll walk in accordance with the power and reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. I didn't think I was going to get to chapter 8 and verse 4 this morning, but it just seemed like it was natural to do so. So you would see that chapter 8 doesn't move on to a new subject. It moves on to the way in which we become people who are gospel law keepers. We're keepers of the law through the gospel. In other words, we're not keepers of the law in place of the gospel. We don't need the gospel because we have the law. We don't need Jesus because we have the law. But it's in Christ. We have the law of the spirit of life. It's in Christ that God has done for us what the law could not do. That it's in Christ God condemns sin in the flesh and it's in Christ. He did it in order that the things the law requires would be realized in you and me. That we would be keepers of the law, not through the power of the law. Law has no power to make us keepers of the law, but through the power of the gospel. That's the genius of the gospel. And it brings us to be law keepers, even though it wasn't the direct intention. Um, but yet it's the ultimate end. The ultimate end is to make us gospel law keepers. Well, we have a couple minutes left. Questions, comments? Anything that you didn't understand? Uh, I know I threw a lot of words at you this morning. I apologize, but <laughs> hope some of it hit the mark. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we, we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the power of the gospel. We're thankful that it's in Jesus. We have the blessings of a new creation. That it is in Jesus we are delivered from the condemnation that we were under in Adam. We're thankful that in Jesus we have been justified. In Jesus we have been empowered by the spirit of, of life. Not to live after the flesh, but after the spirit. We're thankful that through the power of the spirit, the righteous requirements that are contained in your law, the wisdom of the law, the goodness of the law is fulfilled in us that we can live lives that serve you and honor you and please you. We're thankful for the power of the gospel not only to forgive us but to transform us, to empower us and to equip us to be faithful before you. Help us, Lord, to be more and more faithful that, Lord, we would continue to delight in your law after the inward man and we would continue to serve you with the law of our minds. Even though we know we're never going to achieve in this life all we design and desire, we're thankful we have pardon in Christ and we're thankful we have power in Christ. And so, Lord, with these realities, we pray that you'd give us understanding 
And we pray that you'd help us to live lives that would be balanced before you, that we wouldn't fall into the all the different heresies that seem to take out some of these assertions and just bring them to an extreme. Help us to see how the scriptures bring us away from any thought of our own perfection, even thought of gospel perfection until Jesus comes again. But yet it brings us to see the importance of continued progress we make in our walk with you and our conformity to the image of Christ. So hear our prayers. Bless your people. Bless us as we fellowship with one another in the in the time to come in between our, our study this morning and our morning worship. Draw near to us as we gather for the morning hour. Pour out your grace and your spirit upon us, we plead, as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.